You know, our praise is a privilege, right? That we as rebellious, sinful people had no right to praise a holy and just God. But because of his great love for us, because of what Christ did and his atoning work on the cross for our sins, and as we come back into relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus, God then gives us the privilege of being able to praise him for who he is. It's a privilege to be here and praise week in and week out with other saints. It's going to be a privilege to stand before the throne one day and unto the Lamb and praise Him day in and day out. It's a privilege for us to come before God and praise Him. So I think it's important that we as the people of God don't ever lose sight of the privilege of praise that we've been given because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So each and every time we have the opportunity to gather together, let's take advantage of our privilege. And what an amazing thing it is to be able to praise them a magnificent Savior that did such a wonderful work on our behalf. In Mark chapter 12, we find an intriguing little account, one that only Mark and Luke record in their gospel accounts. And if you aren't paying attention, you'll read right through and hardly realize that it was there. And what we find in this narrative is Jesus sitting in the temple, and he seems to just be taking in the sights. So Mark chapter 12, I'm going to start reading in verse 41. God's word says this, And he, being Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper corns, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I love the people watch. Any people watchers in the house tonight? I love the people watch. And I have found that some venues are better than others when it comes to providing just a pure form of entertainment and watching people. So I'm going to give you a little rundown of some of my top-ranked places the people watch. Leading off the list, it's going to be Walmart. <laughs> Number two, I'm going to say is ball games. And you ever watch people at a ball game? Some of y'all need to be reminded that people are watching you at ball games. You in here praising right now and you out there cursing the refs during the week. Some people need to be reminded people are watching you at ball games. People can act a fool at ball games. Man, I'm hoping and praying that's not me one day. Like if Graham grows, I know like my competitive nature, like it runs deep, and I'm afraid that Graham's gonna get into sports and I'm not gonna be able to contain myself. I'm gonna make a fool of myself at the ballpark or in the gym. I love to watch people at ball games. Number three would have to be weddings. Man, you can see some good people watching entertainment at weddings, especially if you get a wobbler. Have you ever been to a wedding where you actually saw somebody pass out? Yeah, I've seen that live. Like, it wasn't on America's Funniest Home Videos. I actually saw that happen one time at a wedding in Huntsville. Dude locked up. Man, there was like this beautiful setup behind him, these two columns, and they had like this big box of ferns on top of it. He rocked straight back into it, knocked it all the way down. Like, weddings can be great places to people watch. There's a lot of nerves, a lot of emotions, a lot of freedom some people take advantage of at weddings. Weddings are very, very good venues to people watch. Number four would have to be the beach. 
I, there is a great, there is a great debate. I want to hit home for Monica, right? Hey, there's a great debate amongst our family of whether to like go to a private type beach house or go to the condos. And one of the main issues around this debate is that at the private kind of area, we'd be secluded, but like you can't people watch as much. That's a legit serious uh, a thought that we give into where we're going to go spend our time at the beach vacation because we love to people watch. Like, it is pure entertainment. Like I sit on the balcony sometimes with my binoculars and I'm just watching people make a fool out of themselves. Somebody gets stuck in the surf and can't get up, they just wash them up on the beach and wash back out and wash back up and wash back out. I love to watch people at the beach. Here's my last pick, and it's a sleeper. Don't, don't sleep on this one. It's going to be restaurants. Don't sleep on restaurants. Have you ever actually watched somebody eat? <laughs> I don't think there's anything more grotesque or beastly that we all willingly participate in publicly than eating. One of my favorite places, I'm going to get my top restaurant. One of, my, one of my favorite places to watch people eat. I know y'all think I'm weird, like, it's fine. It's Olive Garden. And the reason is because, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of uppity. Like, it's a nice, sophisticated environment. Most people put on some decent attire when they go there. It's a date night kind of place. Like, they got the lights lit just right. It's kind of a nice ambience. And everything's all, all nice and put together, clean and sophisticated. And then they set that pasta down. And it is just a free-for-all. Like, all the nice clothes, the nice attire goes out the window when that spaghetti or when that Alfredo or that linguine gets put down and people just go berserk. And we don't really know how to handle pasta as it is. That's just a, a, a situation in and of itself, trying to eat pasta in a proper way. Like, you just got to go for it. And so it's funny to watch, like, in that environment, people just absolutely go into town on that pasta when it gets sat down in front of them. But in all seriousness, I found that you can learn a decent amount about someone by just sitting and watching them. Most times you can tell if they're having a good or a bad day. A lot of times you can tell about a personality, whether that person is an introvert or an extrovert. You can typically pick out whether or not they're stressed or relaxed, if life seems to be going good, or if everything seems to be upside down. You can sometimes pick out hobbies that they may take a particular interest in. You can uncover if somebody is married or single. All these different things you can uncover about somebody just by watching them. So I want to go back to the text and pick out a particular part where it says that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. I think Jesus was a people watcher. So I want us to consider some things tonight from the subject of omniscient observations. Jesus is sitting in the temple and he's doing some people watching. But listen, Jesus always sees with a deeper vision. And where we can only make surface-level observations, Jesus can make spirit-level observations. He's looking into hearts. And just like I talked about how we have the capacity to just sit and watch people and learn some specific things about them, what does Jesus learn about us when he sits down and glares into our life? What does Jesus learn about us particularly when he sits down and observes the things that we do? 
how we act, where we go, the people that we're around, the things we take an interest in. What does the omniscient one observe about our lives when he takes a peek into our hearts? What does he see as he plunges past our outward actions to reveal our inward motives? This poor widow is about to become an object lesson for the disciples and for us of just how intently Jesus watches and looks into our lives. And so as Jesus observes us, I want to show you some particular things, and they're going to come in the form of questions because I all want us to do some heart diagnosing tonight. So the first question is this. As Jesus observes us, does he see a heart of obligation or desperation? So picture the scene with me once again. I want to make sure that we have a good grasp, a good imagery of what's taking place in this text. Jesus is sitting off to the side, and he's observing the things that are taking place in the temple. Now, let us all be reminded that he always keeps watch over the things that are taking place in his house. Jesus is not just let his bride run rampant and run loose. He always keeps a watchful eye over the things that are taking place in his house and what his people are doing there. So he's sitting off to the side and he's observing these people as they come into the temple and specifically he's watching people as they give their money. Now imagine if we passed the offering plate around and Jesus was standing over in the corner. I wonder, I wonder how many of us would all of a sudden decide not to give online that week because we would want to make sure that Jesus sees us being faithful with our tithe and offering and dropping it in there. We'll come back to that in a little bit and what these people were doing. But he's watching these people as they give their money. And the text leads us to believe that the majority of people who had come through were well off. Jesus said that, that many rich people had come through and put in large sums. And as Jesus is seeing them put in what's been described as just that, as large sums, in walks this widow who puts in what we're told would be the equivalent of a penny, the last little bit of money that she had to her name. Now, actually, most historians believe that if you were to dig into the real value of what she put in, that in modern day, it would have come out to be a little bit less than an actual penny. Now, what a tiny amount of what seems like to be insignificant in value this woman has just placed in the offering box on the heels of many other rich people who had put in large sums. The disparity in value between what she gave in comparison to what everybody else gave was laughable. There really was no comparison. And Jesus would have seen that because he's been watching the entire time, but he sees something deeper taking place. And what struck me is, is that the entire time he has sat off to the side and he's observed all these people come in, put their money in the box, large sums, he hasn't said a word. He's kept his silence. He's kept to himself. He just quietly observed all these people as they put in their large sums of money. The entire time, he has not said one thing. These people have been throwing stacks of money into the box. And you would think that after seeing that take place, he would have called his disciples over and pointed that out. You would think that the first person that walked up and just threw an absolute wad of cash 
into the money box, Jesus would have been like, hey, guys, come, come here, come here, come here. Look at this. Did you see what he just did? Look at how much money he just gave. That's crazy. I haven't seen anybody. Wait a second. Wait, here comes somebody else. They gave him even more. Here, come, here comes somebody else. They doubled down. Too. Look at all the money that these people have given. I want you guys to look at it. Look at, look at, look at how much these guys, look at how much these, these people are giving to my house. Look at the, the astronomical amount of money that they have put in. But he didn't say a single thing until this woman drop, walks up and drops a penny into the box. And after she drops her penny in there, he says, God, come here, come here, come here, come here. Look at, you got to see what I, did you see what I just saw? That woman just gave a penny. Now imagine when he first called the disciples over there, they were like, yeah, what's that going to do? You're impressed by that? He calls them over and you would think after the large sums were placed in, he would have made a big deal out of that, but he didn't say a word. Not until this woman walks up and she drops her penny in. That's when Jesus speaks up, calls his disciples over and tells them, you got to see this. And he then proceeds to show them and us what it is about what this woman did that got him so excited. Remember, he's looking at hearts. And when Christ looks at our hearts, he always holds a lens of obedience up to them. This is where we get to the nitty-gritty of it. I believe Jesus saw the majority of these people giving out of obligation. They knew what the law said. They knew what they were called to be obedient to, what was expected or what was demanded of them. And I think the vast majority of them came in and they gave their money from a heart of obligation. But when this woman gave, Jesus saw that it came out of a heart of desperation. That's what struck him as so amazing. That's what led him to say, you guys got to come over here and see this. I know you look at the surface, you look at the surface level value of what just happened, but I'm telling you, there's something way deeper at work in this poor woman's heart than anybody else that has walked up to this point. All these other people have given out of a place of obligation, but this woman has put her money in out of a heart of desperation. Many of these others were giving, I think this, many of these others were giving to appease God. She was truly given to please God. And there is a big, big difference between the actions in those two. Let's do a heart check. Does your obedience flow from a place of obligation or desperation? Do we sing because we're obligated? Do we serve out of obligation? Do we attend? Do we give? Do we teach? Do we pray? Do we read because we feel obligated to do that? Or is it because our heart's desperate desire is to honor God through those things? When Christ looks at us, his church, is he seeing obligated people? Or is he seeing desperate people? People that just desperately desire to honor him with all that they are. Or is it just a bunch of going through the motions? Is it just a bunch of, I'm here because I've got to be here? Is it just because I've been raised this way and I know the things that I'm supposed to do and the words that I'm supposed to say and the prayers that I'm supposed to pray and the songs that I'm supposed to sing and the mission trips that I'm supposed to serve? Is he seeing obligation in the house or is he seeing desperation from his people? This woman shows us that desperate obedience 
will go to desperate lengths. Why? Because just like we were singing a moment ago, he's worthy. But he's not just worthy, he's what? He's worthy of it all. Man, this woman just gave all because he's worthy. And her heart was so desperate to honor God through obedience that she said, have it, take it. You're worthy of it all. What's your heart, men and women of God? Is it, is it full of obligation? Is it full of desperation? Now we're, we're, missing, we're missing desperation in the house of God. We're, we're missing men and women of God who, who desperately desire to honor Him through their lives in all ways. What does He see? Is it obligation or is it desperation? The next heart question I want to ask is, does he see a heart of selfishness or selflessness? Everybody say selflessness. It's a mouthful, right? I almost had to break it down to three words, selflessness. As Jesus continues with his dialogue to his disciples, he points to the next distinguishing feature of this woman's heart. So all of these other people had dumped their large sums into the box, but Jesus points out that they all gave out of their abundance. But this woman had given out of her poverty all that she has. If you go back and look, he says, Truly I say to these poor widows put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she has. So Jesus states that she's given more than all these people. And how it could actually be read is as Jesus saying this, All these people out of their abundance they have have given a little. But this woman, out of her already little, has given everything. Everyone else had kept the main surplus for themselves. But this widow kept absolutely nothing. Two different hearts that Jesus has observed in these moments. Hearts that are selfish and one heart that was selfless. This is a woman who undoubtedly knew and understood and had seen the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of God at work in her life. And you might ask, well, how do you know that, Trey? How can, you, how can you make that assumption? Because this is exactly the kind of response and action that kind of person would take. Somebody who has experienced, truly experienced the love and the goodness and the faithfulness and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God responds in this kind of way towards them. They respond in a way of reckless abandon and reckless declaration that says, here, just take it all. You're worthy of it. I'm not worthy to keep any of it myself. It's something that you gave me anyway. So take it all and have it for your own glory. This is exactly the kind of response and action that that person would take. So in the midst of all this, I've got to show you something right here. I want to look at the rich people a little more intently for a second. These rich people, they came in. They put their money into the box. And in reality, what they're doing is they're making an investment. So follow me on this a little bit because I think God wants to peel back the layer of what a selfish heart really looks like. These rich people, they come in, they put their money in the box. In essence, they're making an investment. But remember, when it comes to these people, the surplus that they kept exceeded the sacrifice that they gave. That is such a key, key indicator of something that is a much dire issue. I'm going to say it again. They kept the surplus for themselves, and that exceeded the sacrifice that they gave 
unto God. And what this reflects, I told you they made an investment. What this reflects is that the investment that they really made was in themselves. This is the action of a selfish heart. It only invests in itself. And it keeps the surplus every single time. And so the way this manifests in our lives is that we will walk up to God, claim him as Lord of our lives, and we'll say, God, you can have some of my time, but I'm keeping the surplus of it. God, you can have some of my resources, but I'm going to keep the surplus. God, you can have some of my energy, but I'm going to keep the majority of it. You can have some of my devotion, but I'm going to keep the most of it reserved for myself. You can have some of my plans. You can invade some of my desires, but I'm really going to keep the majority of it for myself. God, you can have some of my comforts, but these over here I'm keeping for myself. A selfish heart always keeps a surplus that exceeds its sacrifice. It won't let go fully. But this woman, out of her poverty, gave up the last cent that she had. What would possess someone to do that? What would possess someone to walk up into the house of God with the last little bit of money that they had to their name and drop it into the offering box to walk out and live the rest of their lives to, to face the next coming days with absolutely nothing? Do, do we, does the church today contain this kind of, this kind of faith I don't want to get ahead of myself, but man, could, could you do that? Could you be faithful to that extent? This woman walks up and she puts in everything that she has. So what would possess someone? What, how can somebody live like this? It's because she knew the goodness and the faithfulness and the mercy and the grace and the love of God. Her heart was selfless. Her investment was not in herself. It was in Him. She saw Him as being worthy of it all. Listen, church. Oh, that we as a people who have also known and understood and seen the goodness and the faithfulness and the mercy and the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the favor and the blessing of God would respond in the same way. To selflessly say, God, take my time, take my resources, take my energy, take my plans, take my comforts, take my desires. I put all my chips on the table. You can have it all. My investment is in you. Are y'all good? We need to shake it out a little bit. It's tough. It can be tough dealing with the heart. I'm praying that as his people, we'd stop selfishly resisting and withholding from Jesus. And this is a blanket prayer. This is not me saying I'm praying this for you guys. This is me included, because I wholeheartedly believe that within the context of our church, we have people that are resisting missional calling. I believe we have people that are resisting ministerial calling. I believe we have people that are resisting sacrificial giving. God's calling you to, to give to a place where it would hurt to sacrifice that much, and you know he's doing that. This is not a, this is not a plug, and, and don't, listen, don't email the pastor and be like, hey, I see what you did there. You used Trey as a plug for, for a tithing sermon. 
That's not the case. There's no underlying motives. I truly believe that, that God has called some of us to some sacrificial giving, and you're resisting. I'm praying that we would stop resisting community action and service when the opportunities show up. That people would get serious about their faith being in action and taking those actions beyond the walls of this place. To let others know I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of who Jesus is in my life. I'm not ashamed to take a stand at work. I'm not ashamed to take a stand at school. I'm not ashamed to take a stand amongst my friend group and let them know that these are the lines that God has drawn around my life and I will not compromise them. I'm praying that some of us would stop resisting the radical generosity that Jesus is calling us to exhibit amongst the family of faith. You know, in Acts, one of the descriptives of the church is that they gave so much amongst themselves that nobody had any need. Can you imagine that kind of radical gospel church living where those people amongst themselves had no need? Somebody would bring a need up, and the church would so radically take care of it, they'd come back later and say, hey, guys, uh, stop. I don't, I don't need any more food. I don't need any more money. Y'all done cut the grass like 37 times. There's none left. It's taken care of. Where, where, is these kind of, where is this stuff in the church now? I think we're resisting it. It's not that God's not calling us to it. We're just resisting because we're selfish. we got selfish hearts. My time. My resources, my energy, my efforts, my dreams, my plans, my desires, my comforts. But you're worthy of it all. Will Jesus see in us a heart of selfishness or selflessness? If he were to sit across from you right now, which identifier of your heart does he see? One last question. One last observation. As Jesus observes our life, does he see a heart of fear or faith? And it's funny because, you know, the title's Omniscient Observations. So the thing is, is he already knows. All-knowing. He's all-knowing in his observations. So it's not like he has to figure it out. He already knows. As he observes our lives, does he see a heart of fear or does he see one of faith? I have a theory as to why the rich held back so much for themselves. And I don't think that it was just the love of money or things. That's an easy assessment. And it probably was to an extent. Uh, Jesus gave us a story of a rich young ruler and highlighted the fact that it's very hard for people to let go of the abundance that they have when they have it. And it's very hard for people to sacrifice the things that they enjoy and to give it all up for his sake. But I don't, I don't think that was the only thing. I don't think that was the only problem. My theory is that I think it's because they were afraid. When we don't fully trust God in everything, we won't trust him with everything. I think that drove their fear. They didn't really trust God in everything, so they couldn't, with a good conscience, let go and trust him with everything. Now, I'm not saying that every time 
the offering plate gets passed around. Jesus is not saying every time the offering plate gets passed around that you empty your bank account, that you give all that's in there. But my question is, is what would our response be if he did? What if he said, give it all? What if he walked up to Abraham and said, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac? What if he walked up to Noah and said, I want you to build a boat because it's going to rain? What if he told Abraham, I want you to leave this place you've known as home and go somewhere else that I will show you? What if he called you to something radical faith-wise? This widow, she had a heart full of faith. You know how I know that? Look at what it says. In verse 44, it says that out of her poverty, she put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This widow had a heart full of faith. You know, being widowed during that time could be a life-threatening thing. It may not seem like that big of a deal to you, but back then, it could legitimately be life-threatening. Women didn't make the living that a man could. She had no provider. <laughs> but she had a provider. And I think she knew that on a level that nobody else did that day when she walked in. And you know, we shouldn't doubt for one second whether or not she was taken care of. She gave it all. And I guarantee you that her Lord, he took care of that poor woman. Because I see it in the promises of his word. In Matthew 6, Jesus had already spoken these words before this incident had ever even happened. He says, therefore I tell you to not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus had already spoken these words when this woman walked in and did this. You think he didn't take care of her? You think he didn't see a heart of faith that was willing to give it all for him and say, I tell you what, sweetheart, don't you worry about those clothes. You see those lilies? I got you. Don't you worry about no food now. You see those birds? They eat every single day. I'm going to take care of you. If we'll step out in faith, you'll get to know the great provider in a way in which you never have before. Living in faith is undoubtedly scary, but God will take care of it. All throughout Scripture, we find Jesus seeing faith in people. He saw it in this widow. He saw it in the father of a demon-possessed boy. He saw it in a woman with a bleeding issue. He saw it in Jairus when he pleaded for his daughter. He saw it in blind Bartimaeus when he called out after him to have his sight restored. Does he see it in us is my question. As Jesus observes his people at Underwood Baptist Church, what does he see? 
I'm praying that he sees a people who are desperate, selfless, full of faith.